Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Hey, uh, could you guys stand with me? And we're going to read the passage uh, for this week. It's from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, and it is filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. Um, In this, you rejoice. Let me start by saying this. This passage is, there's a lot about joy in this passage, and there is an expectation of joy in the Bible. And so this is like all over, you know. In Philippians, Paul says, um, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice to the Galatians, Paul says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's joy and peace and patience, but it's an expectation of the result of the work of the Spirit in your life and in your heart and your soul is that there would be joy. In Nehemiah, um, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and that is great news that there's an expectation that, that God will, you know, give us reasons to be joy and we will respond with joy. I find that and have found that for years, and this last few weeks of digging in this passage has been convicting, because I do not feel like I'm very good at joy. Uh, Preaching through Nehemiah a few years ago, that verse really, really got to me. And I've talked with a handful of people about this passage this week, and like a couple people have responded, ooh, yeah, joy, that's tough, you know, (laughs) which doesn't seem like the way that you should respond to joy, Uh, but I think that it is. Does anybody in that boat find joy a little bit challenging? Um, I think there are times where people, you know, people always ask, how are you doing? I think, man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. And they're like, really? You know, because I can't, it's like I can't even convince them that I'm joyful when I'm joyful, and joy comes out in different ways for different people. Uh, But I think I could be really joyful and have a hard time convincing the people around, around me that I am. And it's something that I felt like over the years I need to repent of maybe a deficit of joy in, in my heart. And so this passage, is, it's, uh, it's been great. I mean, I, I've loved where this has gone. And joy, I think, and this is probably what struck me about this, is that joy is like your, is a default state for us. Um, and so, I, like, there's, we, we just, we should be consistently, and let me, I'm going to talk about joy for a few minutes, but we should be joyful consistently. I think Adam and Eve were joyful, walking with God in the cool of the day, and so experiencing his presence brought them joy on a consistent basis. I think people in the Bible that experienced the presence of God, um, while at first terrified, experienced joy after that. I think Peter himself, when he and James and John went on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus, they saw Jesus in his glory with Moses and Elijah, and Peter said, let's pitch some tents and just stay here because this is awesome, experienced joy. I think we're made for joy. Children um, are really good at joy. They are better, by and large, than adults at joy. Children like to dance more than we do just because it's a joyful thing to do. They like to color 
um, more than we do. Because they just find joy in simpler things than, than we do. And so joy is something that is a default state for us. But in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so trials get in the way of joy. So this is how I've been working on this all week, that joy is something that God has created us for. He's given us reason to be joyful. It's supposed to be coming out of us, but trials are like the thing that get in the way of joy. And how we manage those two things um, is going to say a lot about how we live our lives and, and um, how we think about uh, our lives. I thought about it a little bit like nutrition. Um, I think a lot about uh, nutrition it, in part because 15 years ago I had heart surgery in the next five or 10 years I'm gonna have to have heart surgery again and so I want to be in good shape it's been a good like thing to trick trick myself with and staying in shape is and so if, if you want to be motivated nutritionally go ahead and have heart surgery and have to have it again and that'll work for you you know uh, but when I think about that one of the things I frequently think is that your body is always ready to work with you to to get in good shape because your body is always burning it's always needing energy, and so your metabolism is always burning calories, and so whenever you're ready, it's ready uh, to get started, and what's in the way of that is what we eat. Now, we need what we eat, but if we can manage the things that we eat um, better, then our body's going to get into better shape, and we can actually um, change the metabolism of our body by getting some exercise or building muscle, and then you'll burn more calories, and it'll work with you even more, and I feel like this is similar. There's a similarity in that there are always like a supply of things that we can be joyful about, and we can actually increase or decrease that supply by what we pay attention to and, and how we focus on the things that God's doing in us and around us. Um, and then there are things that are coming against that that we have to, to manage. Um, and so I get to the end of this, and it just changes the way that, that I'm thinking about it. So rejoice, uh, in this you rejoice, and in the passage... He is, um, he is speaking of hope. I mean, what he's talked about, and we've talked about the last few weeks, that according to his mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so he's given us a hope, and we rejoice in that hope. He has promised us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefade, un, unfading, and undefiled. And so the hope, you know, that this that we're rejoicing in is this inheritance that he has promised us, that he's guaranteed, that he's protecting for us, and so we have uh, hope in that. And um, joy comes from, from hope. Uh, I don't think that's the only thing that biblically we're called to rejoice in. Uh, and so this week I've been thinking about what joy is. Um, you know, a lot of times we try and discern between joy and happiness, and, uh, and they are like two different things, but I think joy... I think there's probably a happiness that gets encompassed within joy, and then there's a happiness outside of joy that's just a different type of thing, but happiness is a part of joy. I think um, contentment probably plays a lot into being joyful. Um, I think wonder plays into it, the ability to wonder, uh, to experience awe. I think gratitude plays into it. Uh, I read this definition of joy um, by a pastor named John Piper. He said, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And he has a whole article about this definition, and it's great. And so he says, Christian joy, it, it is a feeling. I mean, it's a, an emotion. 
and you experience it in the soul. And so it's not, I talked last week about, um, you know, our, our uh, being addicted to dopamine. Our digital addictions are flooding us with dopamine. And it's not that. It's not just some chemical reaction, although I'm sure there's chemistry involved in it, but it's in our soul. It's produced by the Holy Spirit, which is what the Bible tells us, and it, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. And, um, you know, James says that, God is the one that, that gives us all good gifts, and so the things that, that bring us joy are gifts that we get uh, from him. What brings you joy? That's a real question, but I want real answers. What brings you joy? Chocolate. <laughs> all right, excellent. Children. Friendships. NC State beating Clemson. Yes. <laughs> what else brings you joy? Being complimented. Yes, watching your kids score a goal. Yeah, helping other people. Dance parties. Um... I'll just sit in that for a few minutes. Like, love brings you joy. Um, when you are with people you love and who love you and you're in good relationship, um, that brings you joy. I mean, some of my most joyful moments have been family vacations that our, you know, my wife and our four kids have taken together that have just been great joy. Um, friends can bring you joy. John and I are part of this pastor's group, and we get together a couple times a year, and just last month, we got together in cashers at a house that one of the guys, um, his elder, one of his elders has this, this beautiful house out in cashers in the mountains, and we've gotten together the last four years, and there's one, like, screened-in porch on the back with a huge fireplace, and we um, we, so much friendship has occurred in that room. It's like a sacred place for us, and there's joy just you know, going there in the anticipation of going there. Reconciliation of relationships. Um, I was talking to someone at church this week who had uh, been at odds with a family member for um, a year or two now, and it was just hurting her. And she got a chance to have a conversation with that family member, and they worked out really some miscommunications and experienced a reconciliation that brought uh, great joy. And so love brings um, joy. I think... For me, wonder brings joy. And so Sunday night, um, I was leaving here. We had an elder meeting. The students had met, and I was driving home with my daughter, Abigail, and we, um, there was a, I don't know if you remember Sunday night, and Monday night too, but it was a harvest moon, I guess they call it. The moon was pretty big, and it was kind of foggy, and so it was like a yellowish, orangish. I just thought it was awesome. And stuff like that gets me to just stop and like breathe and wonder at it and I love it. I love fall weather. I love that it's cool out. I love that the leaves are about to change. I think the leaves are like a big fireworks show in slow motion that lasts a month, and I love every minute of it, you know? And so I think there is wonder in that that can lead to joy. We have a puppy. He is probably more of a trial than he is joy, but he is joy, you know? Um, and so things like that. Productivity. When you finish a project... Um, when you work hard and you score a goal, when your team uh, wins, um, there's a joy that comes along with 
working side by side with people and getting something done, uh, there's joy. Recognition, a compliment. I was talking to someone else at church this week who um, a couple months ago they had they had applied for a promotion and they didn't get the promotion and then a couple months later kind of out of the blue they got the promotion and like there was joy in that and it is recognition and it's a new challenge and all those things can lead to joy. Justice can lead to joy. Redemption can lead to joy. Worship. And worship leads to joy. When we can leave it beside and just focus on the Lord alone, that leads to joy. Lots of, God's given us all sorts of stuff that can lead to joy, right? Uh, how often do you need that stuff in order to be joyful? I don't think there's a great answer to that, but consistently, you consistently need those things. I started thinking about, is it, are we naturally, does joy come from the inside or does joy come from the outside? And some people are naturally like more joyful. I think John Fouché is one of those people. It's why I love being John's friend and, and John being on staff because he's always like, how you doing? And he's got that smile and it's great. Uh, and you need people like that. Most of us aren't like naturally like that. Um, and I think joy comes from from the outside. I think Adam and Eve were joyful in the, in the garden because they were in the presence of God. It was the presence of God that made them joyful. Um, us on an island alone doesn't make us joyful, like castaway, you know? <laughs> but God's presence with us makes us joyful. Um, and then how long do these things need to last in order for us to, like, stay joyful? They're not, they're not dopamine fixes, you know? Um, and I think there's a difference in... in like some things that can make us temporarily and I would say artificially happy and what uh, leads to joy. I sent an article out in the weekly email um, and it was called The Scrolling Soul. And it was a little bit of a follow-up to last week but also a precursor to this week. And the last paragraph of this article is that it said, scrolling shrivels your soul as it pulls, it pulls your soul in a thousand different directions. It distracts you from the greatest object your soul could ever love and the most glorious truths your eyes and ears could ever behold. Don't let your soul get sucked into the vanity of an aimless scrolling wasteland where paths lead everywhere but never to a place of rest and joy. Instead, lead your soul along the path of life that leads to ultimate satisfaction. Psalm 16 is quoted at the end. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, so God, I'm not sure if joy is our default state, but God gives us, uh, regularly gives us things that can bring us joy if we're paying attention to them and taking them in and receiving them from the Lord. So joy, um, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And so if joy is a natural state, if it's something that we can consistently expect to receive reasons to be joyful from the Lord, then what gets in the way of that? I think the passage says trials. Well, I want to talk about trials, and, and I'm going to say four things about them. I'm going to keep these pretty quick. But the passage says these four things. Trials are temporary. Trials have purpose. Trials are painful, and you are going to have lots of trials. And so let me take those in reverse order. You are going to have lots of trials. Can I get an amen to that? You are going to have lots of trials. And I started categorizing trials this week and then thinking about us as a church. And I thought about physical trials. 
You know, I talked to um, uh, Scott Haith this week, and they're, they're down at the beach. Scott's been sick for like three weeks. Pray for Scott. <laughs> I mean, he is just down because he's, he's sick. I thought about um, Ronnie recently and having surgery on his foot. We got foot trials. I thought about, we got mental health trials. Uh, we got MS trials, right? We got heart trials. We got lung trials. We got COVID trials. We got cancer trials. We got all sorts. We have no shortage of physical trials. Uh, we have relational trials. There are marriage trials in here. There are kid trials in here. There are parent trials in here, co-worker trials, neighbor trials, roommate trials, sexual trials, like all sorts of relational trials. We have professional trials. Uh, some of you are trying to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up, and you have been grown up for a little while now, you know? Uh, some of you are thinking, man, what I do doesn't make any difference at all, and so I don't know if I should continue to do the thing that I've been doing. Some of you think the thing that I'm doing does matter, but nobody recognizes that the thing that I spend my life doing matters. And so we have professional trials. We have spiritual trials. We have doubt trials. We have spiritual warfare trials. We have, like, malaise trials. Um, we have cultural trials. You will face trials every day until you die or until Jesus comes back. And the Bible is clear about that. Um, but we can rejoice in the midst of those trials. Here is the, um, the second thing he says. Trials are going to be painful, uh, though for you have been grieved by various trials. The Bible, and I don't, this is the, this is the great thing about this passage, I feel like, um, is that it holds these things in balance. They're not in balance necessarily, but in the tension that they, they live in in our life. Like we can, there, God gives us things to rejoice in while at the same time we can be experiencing trials that cause great pain. And the Bible does not sweep our pain um, under the rug. One pastor referred to this term like translated as agony. You've been grieved, you've been in agony because of these trials. Charles Spurgeon referred to it as a heaviness that there is a heaviness to the trials that you go through. Jesus himself knows that heaviness and that agony. Before he goes to the cross, he says to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me as he's in the garden of Gethsemane. God knows your pain. Um, I was talking to someone this week that was, you know, in a tough place and asked if they'd been you know, if they'd been reading, and they're like, no, and I wasn't trying to be like making them feel worse, <laughs> like guilty, but, but because the Bible knows our pain, there is relief in it. And earlier this week, I was reading from Psalm 38. Part of Psalm 38 is this. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. God does not ignore the dark places that you find yourself in. He meets you in them. Um, later in this psalm, uh, David writes, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. 
Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Uh, the Bible doesn't minimize the pain, but it doesn't let us stay there. Um, it doesn't want us to wallow in it. It doesn't make the pain ultimate, which sometimes the pain feels like all there is. I think this is saying your, your trials don't have to paralyze you. They don't have to define you, though for a season they might. That season won't last. Um, there's a guy that I listened to a few years ago who said something I won't forget. Um, his name is Terry Wardle. Never heard of him before, never heard of him since. And uh, he said, life is a series of unlamented losses. And I think for many of us it is. And we've, we've used the language of lament in part because of Stephen ministry and for other reasons. Where is God when life happens? We've tried to coach the church into lament because lament matters. And the Bible gives us space to uh, lament. Um, it doesn't require us to sweep things under the rug, but to deal with those things. And there's an article I read a couple years ago about lament and how lament is turning to God. It is complaining to God um, in, a, in an honoring way, complaining to God, asking God for help, and then trusting that God will provide it. But we've got to go through those steps with the Lord. And what happens when you don't deal with loss, when you don't really lament, is like you kind of, part of you gets stuck there. Uh, and it's going to come back to bite you. So trials are really painful, and they require real lament uh, that you're going to need help doing. Third thing, trials have purpose. And so one, one commentator wrote, the words, if necessary, in this passage are critical words. If necessary. Because trials aren't necessarily necessary. <laughs> um, Adam and Eve didn't have to experience trials. They had a temptation that, that they failed that led to all sorts of other trials. So we're going to experience them. But they weren't necessarily a part of God's original creation. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And so those trials are going to produce something in us. They're going to produce greater faith in us. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, that's the promise. That trials are going to produce in us something that we need. Another translation, it will make you mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't think, I don't know how this works. I don't think every trial um, comes about explicitly for the purpose of changing you. But I think God can use every trial to grow your faith, to make you more like him. I think this is hard, and I think we don't embrace this um, as much as would be helpful for us, in part because we don't like change, and we're not honest with ourselves about just how much we individually need to change. Um, we, we much prefer focusing on how the people around us need to change than on how we need to change, and that God might be at work in these trials in ways that we need, even if we don't want to need that. There is a, 
A line I read out of a book years ago that a guy said, people change when the cost of staying the same is greater than the cost of change. People change when the cost of staying the same is greater than the cost of change. And I found myself thinking about that a lot. <laughs> we will dig in our heels until we just have to change. And so a lot of times it's a trial that is the thing that is going to change us. And we just need change. We need to become more like Christ. We are not there yet. And so we can't rest. And so he is going to give us opportunities um, to change. One of the commentaries um, I've been reading a couple weeks ago about First Peter uh, referenced a play that I'd never heard of before by a French atheist existentialist named Jean-Paul Sartre called No Exit. Has anybody heard of this? Has anybody actually read it? Excellent. Uh, so he's an atheist, but it's his take on hell, and it's three people locked. Hell is three people locked in a room forever. You just think about that for a while. It's easy to get there, you know? And after they get through the veneer of who they have presented themselves to be to the people around them, and even to their own selves, and they get to who they really are, they can't stand each other. <laughs> uh, but there's no hope of change. And I have thought this a lot. It was the basis for the TV show, The Good Place, that was really popular over the last few years, was this play. And I just think he's right in so many ways. I think it is what's it's part of, um, similar to how C.S. Lewis expresses hell in uh, The Great Divorce, in that we need, we need change. None of us is ready to spend eternity locked in a room with anybody, you know, <laughs> including ourselves. We need change, but we're so stubborn uh, to change. And so trials are going to produce change in you, and that is a wonderful thing. It is a great thing. And at the end of that, he says that, um, it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And that isn't you praising and glorifying and honoring Jesus. It's Jesus praising and glorifying and honoring you. Uh, it is the well-done, good and faithful servant and praising your faith um, because of trials. Paul writes to the Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so he talks about how we manage trials in this balance. We are afflicted in every way, trials, but we are not crushed. They're not ultimate. We are perplexed. <laughs> we don't know what's going on, but we are not driven to despair. Uh, we are persecuted. Bad things are going to be done to us, but God has not forsaken us. We are struck down, but not destroyed we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And he, he finishes that section. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God has purpose in those trials. And I like that passage from Paul. Um, Spurgeon, in talking about this passage and these trials, talked about ocean currents and how you can have an ocean current that's going one way in the surface but another way underneath. And how that's how trials and joy run in our lives. They can both be running at the same time, but most of the time all we can see is one or the other. And somehow understanding that God is in both of them um, and is at work in all of them is helpful to us. 
And so the last thing he says, trials are temporary, the first thing. And Paul says it here too, a light momentary affliction preparing us for eternal um, weight of glory. If for a little while you're grieved by this various trials. You, we are not, we're, we're not here for 80 years. We're not going to be around for 80 years. We're going to be around for 80 million years and it'll just be getting started. And there's no start and there's no end because the resurrection tells us we are eternal. It affirms for us what we sense that we were not made for death. Um, we were, ma- were made for life. Death is like the thing that should be most natural to us, but is the thing that is most shocking to us. Because the Bible's true and we weren't made for it. Uh, and so these trials are a blip on the radar sc- screen of eternity. And if you're following Jesus, your trials are being used to prepare you for that eternity, and they will not be wasted. And that is hard. Living this life in light of eternal life is hard. But that's all of what First Peter is, is emphasizing to us and pushing us towards. And I'll challenge you, if you're not following Jesus, you need change. You need change. Um, I read a quote from, I think it's from Charles Kilson, that the human capacity for self-justification is limitless. And that's true if you are following Jesus, too. But if you're not following Jesus, that's all we have, is finding ways to justify ourselves, to think that we're okay. And if we have Christ, then, you, then he has made you okay. And that's the only reason that you're okay. Um, when, people, when people die, you know, we are rightfully generous to people in their passing. But but in those conversations, we ignore all the things that needed to change and pretend that, that there's an afterlife. We'll just all get along magically without paying attention to the thing that would have to change us to get along magically. And that is what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us we are a mess. We have made a mess, messes. We are surrounded by messy people that are making messes. Uh, you are somebody else's trial. Right? I guarantee you that. Uh, I, am, I can only imagine how many people's trials I have been over my life. <laughs> Think about that for just a second when you leave today. But you or someone in here probably has thought, man, if that person would just get it straight, then my life would be so much better. You are someone else's trial. And God wants to fix that. And he has come to clean up the mess that you've made on the cross and pay for the consequences for our sins. And to clean up us, the mess makers, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that same power is at work in us right now, making us new, um, to make things right. And so uh, they're temporary, and we need him to fix us. And if you aren't following Christ, you need Christ, and he has given you everything you need. So joy is, your, joy is our default state. God has created us to be joyful. It's always there for us, right? And trials are in the way, but they are temporary. They have purpose. They are painful, and we will have lots of them. Uh, and when we surrender all that to him by faith, we're going to be in a better place. I, read a, a, I just finished reading a novel this week called The Last Green Valley. It's a World War II novel. It's amazing how many great stories have come out of four years of trial in World War II, like evidence for this sermon to be true. Um, But this guy and his wife were raised in 
uh, the, in the Ukraine under Stalin, after Stalin had taken over, and they were ethnically German. Their families had been there for a few generations. So they were raised under Stalin. Hitler came through um, during World War II, and then as World War II was winding down, Stalin came back through. <laughs> so they had to pick their poison between Stalin and Hitler. And what they decided to do, they had the chance, because they were ethnically German, to retreat with the German army, and they tried to get back to Berlin and escape to the West before the war was over. This was their plan. Now, when the guy's name was Emil Martel, when the Germans were coming through the Ukraine in 1941, um, they would find these ethnic German folks and either conscript them into the army or make them prove their Germanness um, in various ways, and one of them was by killing Jewish people. So, so a central part of this story is one night in 1941, the German army takes them out into a field. They're killing Jewish people, and they say, you're going to kill some Jewish people to prove your Germanness. And he's like, and he prays to God, God, don't make me do this. And he says, I'm not going to do that. And the guy says, you are going to do that, or we're going to kill your family. And he gives them a gun. And the guy decides, I'm going to shoot these three people in front of me because I have to, because if I don't, they're going to kill my family. And just as he's about to pull the trigger, a commanding officer comes over and asks what's going on, and they describe it, and he says, well, Himmler, Heinrich Himmler himself, has said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to make people do it. And this is insane, but they said, we're only going to have ethnic Germans that want to kill Jewish people kill them. And so he doesn't have to. Um, at the last second. And, uh, but he walks away from that night thinking that God abandoned him and lost his faith. Never talks to his wife about it. And they have a great relationship. And she's full of faith. And it's just part of their story as they go on. Five years later, he is separated from his wife. He's been taken by the, by the Soviets to a, a Soviet prison camp in the Ukraine. And he is working 16 hours a day uh, mixing concrete in like 10 degree below weather. Um, all day, and he runs across a character that he's run across earlier in the story who he is, just has a crazy story but is full of faith. And he, conf he confides in that guy about that night and what happened. And the guy says to him, there's a lot more to this obviously, but he says, but God did answer your prayer. And he's like, well, no, he didn't because like, I'd already decided I was going to kill those people. He said, but you didn't have to kill them. Like he sent that guy at just the right time so that you didn't have to kill him. And they work through that. And Emile Martel ends up like everything changes in his life in a moment because he starts to see God at work in things. Like, and it's like a choice to either see God at work in them or not. And that is faith, is to, to believe that God is sovereign over these things and he's at work in them or to not to. And it changes his life. And he ends up miraculously reconciled, or um, not reconciled, but like he finds his family um, and, and they say forever he was a different guy after all that happened. And they end up immigrating to America, and they go to Montana. And the stadium, at Mon he ends up, like, just needing a job. And so he, he goes to a builder and, and asks for a job. And the guy says, well, all I have is I need someone to mix concrete. And he's like, well, I mix concrete 16 hours a day in a Soviet prison camp, so I can do that. Uh, but opens his own building company, and he and the two sons that were with him on that whole journey end up having a little um, Western Montana building empire, and the, the stadium at Montana State University is named Martel Stadium after this family. It's an incredible story. I ruined it for you, but you should still read the novel. 
because I might read it again. It's so great. Uh, you weren't going to read it anyway. Get off my back. Um, if, you, if you regularly, and I would challenge you to do this this week, had a friend or two or three people of faith and took inventory of your trials um, and then looked, counseled each other through it, yeah, they're real. We have various trials. They are painful. And sit in that with folks for a few minutes. God has purpose in them. And sometimes we get to see that purpose play itself out. And other times we just by faith have to trust that God has purpose, even if we couldn't understand it. And they are temporary and they are going to pass. If you had people that would speak that into you, and at the same time you took inventory of the things God has given you, to, to bring joy to your life. If you did that regularly, would that change you? That would change you. And that's just what he's calling us to. Um, he ends this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And he recognizes even this, that we have not seen him but we love him. We don't now see him, but we believe in him. And so we rejoice in Christ. In Christ. And so we're going to finish this by taking um, communion. <laughs> uh, you, you should have one of these on your seat. Um, Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. And so he is here. Whatever trials you're going through, we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one that has tempted, been tempted in every way. He, he knows what you're going through. Um, Paul says, he was rich, became poor, so that those who were poor might become rich. Um, and so... Um, if you want to take off the, the top of this and this is Christ's body that has been broken for us since we take this in a remembrance of him. And this is this blood that's been shed for us as we drink this in remembrance of him. I'm going to ask you to, to close your eyes and bow your heads for just a minute. This is a hard sermon to give because I don't know what you're going through. And I'm really cognizant about um, minimizing or glossing over your trials and the hard things that you have gone through. I don't want to do that. And yet, I absolutely believe this is true, that he has given you reasons to rejoice. That faith will train us um, to understand how he is sovereign over our trials and how he is using them and so he is good in spite of them and um, and faithful train us to see all the things that he has given us to rejoice in Jesus knows your trials he knows them and he has experienced hard things and it is an amazing thing about our God is 
that he came down to be with us and to empathize with those trials and to, through the resurrection, give us the promise that he has overcome them. If you have not received him as the one who died on a cross to pay for your sins and rose from the dead to give you the hope of new life, There is no better decision, no more important decision, no more life-changing decision that you will make than that. And I encourage you this morning to surrender yourself to him. Father, thank you that you do not ignore the things that we're going through, um, that you know our weaknesses, that you know our pain, that you know our trials, that you've experienced it yourself. But you give us hope that you have overcome it, Lord. And you give us reason after reason after reason every day to rejoice, ultimately in the hope um, of the kingdom that we get foretastes of, Lord. But we can rejoice in the foretaste that you give us now, including each other. Including the opportunity to worship you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.